Thank you, Arnold. How's everybody doing? Great. Hi. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm on the teaching team, and I get to unpack this message. We actually have one more in the book of Acts, and then the last week, uh, two weeks from now, Luke will kind of do a recap over the entire book of Acts, so it'll be a good time. This uh, passage I'm excited about, it lines up with kind of something that is just ingrained in my natural personality. Uh, part of pastoring, you get to do lots of different things, hospital visits, discipleship, training people. Probably at the top of my list, my favorite thing to do is premarital counseling. You know, and we go, look kind of no. You know why I love premarital counseling, and it's not for the romantic picture of marriage that the young birds are in. It's because I am such a cynical realist, and I love bringing people down to reality. So just curious, take a second and think, what are some things you think are covered in premarital counseling to bring these lovebirds to reality? Any ideas? Shout some stuff out. What are the topics that need to be covered in premarital? This is money. What else? Child rearing. What else? Religion is a big one. Expectations. You guys are skipping some big ones like a mother-in-law. Anybody have one of those? I do. Communication, how you do your finances, who's the spender, who's the saver, all this sort. So my goal in premarital counseling is this, to break them up. <laughs> and if I don't break them up, then I think they're ready. So let's, that's how. Because your goal is to give them a realistic picture of, I know you guys are lovey-dovey, I was there too, but let me just tell you, that mother-in-law will be at your house every day. I can just tell. Are you ready for that? Oh, she won't. Hi, my wife promised. She will. <laughs> I see the relationship already. That's how we're going down. The book of Acts has done two things for me. One of it is just bring a stark reality to what Christian life is about. It's a, there's a harshness to it. There's a hardness to it. There's a drudgery to it. There's a, a non-kind of hype just way to look at the Christian life. It's just being faithful. But it's also lifted up my eyes and made me more excited and more anticipated more, uh, what's the word, anticipatory for what God is doing because the book of Acts is the picture of how God spread his word throughout a world that previously did not have it. So there's exciting things, there's miracles, there's people being changed, but there's also a real stark, the reality of the Christian life, the reality of marriage is this, this, and this. Are you ready? So that's what the, my topic. It's going to be a little premarital for Christians. It's here's the reality of the Christian life. The big idea is the expectation for Christians is to be faithful witnesses, not impressive winners. That's the goal, to be a faithful witness, not an impressive winner. The passage that kicks off the book of Acts and gives the theme that covers every story we've covered from the start of the church to Peter spreading the church to the Jews to Paul spreading the church to where we're at now where Paul's in prison on his way to Rome. The message, the theme is this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. God gave us this word. He could have put any word in there. And you will be my impactors. You will be my culture changers. You will be the world-changing group. He doesn't use big, lofty. He says, you will be my witnesses. You'll be the man or the woman that's called to the stand and gets to relay what they've seen and heard. Nothing more, nothing less. You will be my witnesses. 
Now, there's a sweetness to that role because it's not bigger than what we can do. But there's a, just a harsh reality, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Five realities of trying to live as a faithful witness. So the first one is this. We're going to jump into it. We ultimately do not control how or when we are called to testify. We ultimately don't control how or when we are called to testify. Now, Arnold just read chapter 6 for us. I want you to go to chapter 25 because I actually... I'm supposed to cover chapter 25, starting in verse 13, all the way through what Arnold just read for us. But I want to set the stage of why Paul is where he is. Paul didn't choose this. Paul doesn't want to be in chains. Paul would rather be starting churches. But he's in prison. And this is how it comes up. Verse 13 of chapter 25. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Festus is the character from last week. He was not a good waiter. And as Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, another guy. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make a defense concerning the charge laid against him. That's the... Festus, Agrippa are being good politics. They're doing what they're supposed to. They're in charge of the Jews. The Jews get to do religion how they want to do. The Jews wanted Paul arrested because of what he was saying in the temple about the resurrection and taking this good news to Gentiles. And now he's in prison, and Festus is saying, I've got to do my due diligence. And next, he wants to get to Caesar. The next step would be Agrippa to come in, and Festus basically says, uh, go down to verse 21. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear from this man myself. Tomorrow I will hear from him. Verse 23, the next day him and his sister show up with great pomp and circumstance and the whole military sort of thing. It's like picture Aladdin when Aladdin becomes uh, who he, the, what's the, the prince or whatever. He shows up on an elephant. It's, they show up, okay, let's do this thing. Let's hear the case. But the point I see here is Paul didn't choose this. Paul would rather be on some random island starting a church there where there was no church before. And yet God in his sovereignty has him arrested by the Jews and now he's in prison and now he's facing people that he doesn't necessarily want to be facing, but he's going to be faithful. We don't ultimately control how or when we get to do this thing. God's in control. There's a passage earlier in the book of Acts that is kind of like a life verse for me because it just reminds me of, of what's really going on in this life. It's in Acts 17. It says this. He made, from one every, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Paul's talking about what God did. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him. God created everyone, and God set up your time frame, your birth, your death, your living locations. He set it all up. In the first service sitting over here was the Brenner family. They've been here for about four years. He works for Toyota, and now he's getting moved off to Dallas. God determined for Brenner family to experience life here, here, and now in Dallas. That's what God did. Why? Because people are seeking their way to God, and Christians, the witness of God, get to bump up against them so that some may seek and actually find the Lord. But ultimately, we're not in control. 
I live in the house that I love. I wanted an old house. I wanted a wood-burning fireplace. I wanted a yard with some grass and trees, and I wanted a fourth bedroom. Check, check, check. The Lord blessed us. But the Lord has us there in Chandler because the Lord has us all where we're at so that people could seek and find their way to God. So we're there for the Morales family, and we're there for Brian and Ruth, and we're there for uh, Augie across the street, and we're there because God has determined that we would be there. Now, that's a sweet thing because I wanted that house. I picked that house. Paul's in prison, and the same thing is true for him. Some of you are in chronic pain visiting the same doctor over and over and over again. And like Paul, you'd prefer to be a witness in a different setting, but God has us all where he has us because that's how he's determined it. Now, there's a freedom there, but there's also a real reality of like, gosh, I've really got to trust that God's got this, and that's true. God has worked things the way he's worked them because he is good and he's in control. As I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about all the people in my life that had become Christians and just the providence behind it all. My dad was just doing life, doing life, doing life. He was a great dad. He was an average to below average husband, according to my mother. She uses more colorful language. But he was a great dad, and the marriage thing, and they divorced when I was in eighth grade. And as he's going through the worst part of his life, as a construction worker, he keeps bumping up against Bob May, Bob May, Bob May, Bob May, and Bob May wins him over to the Lord by just talking about how God won Bob over to the Lord in his own life. My wife went through a really bad breakup outside of high school when she was in college. And she's devastated. And she ha- so happens to be in this small group. She's, go- she's been in church. She wasn't a Christian. And there's a guy there who has the spiritual gift. How great is this spiritual gift? Of witnessing to young, pretty girls. <laughs> He's like 60. Who has that spiritual gift? I think I have that spiritual gift. What's your sweet spot? About 18 to 26, female very fragile. And he was there. He's a married guy. He's actually an elder at Tempe, but he's a great guy. And he was there. And he just walked. He was unfazed by all this drama that she was in this relationship. She's like, but do you believe? Do you believe Jesus? All that sin Jesus knew you were going to do, and he still died for you to believe it. And she got saved. Me, I was walking through high school, living my life, doing my thing, playing baseball, chasing girls. And I got the one girl I wanted, my high school sweetheart. And senior year, she breaks up with me for a male cheerleader. (laughs) How devastating for the man who was the studliest man of all. He gets to watch his girlfriend walk with a guy who was just tumbling in with (laughs) pom-poms. And I'm devastated. Lost in life. And Brian Beltrama, who works for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, meets me at a bagel shop and says, hey, I'd like to pay for you to go to camp. Baseball camp, Christian baseball camp. And I go and boom, the Lord meets me and I become a Christian. God has determined how this is going to go down. I didn't want to break up with her. God worked it out. Aubrey didn't want to wake up with him. My dad did not want a divorce. Yet in the midst of all this, God is working for his good. He will put us right where we need to be as his witnesses. Amen? Amen. Here's what, uh, just to, I'd say be ready. With that being the case, be ready. Don't be like anxiously like nervous, but just have an anticipation about you of what God might be doing through the relationships around you. Be ready. And then here's the other thing, because this can get overwhelming for those of you who maybe carry guilt quickly and have expectations that weigh you down. Like, you don't have to score a touchdown every time. In youth ministry, I have kids seven years with me, and I've just kind of settled in my mind, I'm not going to score a touchdown with each kid, but I'm going to move the ball down the field faithfully. 
What's better, a four runs, three runs of four yards, or one pass that gets you 12 yards? Either way, you've moved the ball 12 yards. Like so many of us think, I just got to seal the deal. I've got to do it all. No, all throughout Scripture, God says, people have laid the foundation. This guy sprinkled water. This guy planted a seed. And you come in and you pull a weed. We're all playing a role. We're just moving the ball down the field as we're ready for what God's doing. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We aren't expected to be impressive experts. With that same notion of too much expectations to actually do the scoring ourselves. What's interesting about this passage is God, through the apostle Paul, doesn't show us a theological expert who just impresses everyone. If you go and read this passage, Paul uses a personal pronoun 32 times, starting in chapter 26, verse 1, down through verse 23. He's not talking abstract, third-person theological truths and just presenting them, disconnected from himself. He's saying, here's what I've experienced. Here's what I've done. Here's how God met me. Me, 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 I, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. He shares his personal testimony. I love my dad. He's a very simple guy. He's always impressed me with how much he can fix and just whatever issue. Me and my friends are driving in high school and a wheel falls off. And we say, Dad, our wheel fell off. Why? Because you're idiots. You need to tighten the lug nuts. Okay, gosh, that's right. Dad, it's smoking from this section. Here's what's going on with it. And I would say, man, my dad knows everything. And all my friends would bring their stuff over like, Mike Watt knows everything. And my dad will say the same thing. I know what I know. His way of saying, I know this, but I don't know this. I don't know this. I know what I know. And that's a true statement of all of us. It's just my dad in his profound simplicity has said it so sweetly. We know what we know. God's not asking us to be experts, to be ready to defend the faith at this level. He's asking us to be witnesses, to defend the faith at the level that we've experienced Jesus and his saving grace. We are personal witnesses. We share personal testimonies. So what Arnold read there in chapter 26, I want to walk through a lot of it. Some of you have maybe have heard this if you've grown up in church, but there's an idea of a personal testimony. It's how God has worked in your life. And whenever we have people baptized on the stage, they walk through their personal testimony with these prompts. And here's the first one. Without Jesus, my life was marked by, and you get to talk about who you are before you were a Christian. So starting in verse 2 here in chapter 26, I want to read Paul talking about his life apart from Jesus. So ch chapter 26, verse 2 there. I consider myself fortunate. So now he's standing before Agrippa, and he's giving his defense. Agrippa's not there for a religious reason. He's just there as a politician doing what he's supposed to. And Paul goes into his testimony. Chapter 2, I consider my, or verse 2. I consider myself fortunate, that's before you, King Agrippa, that I get to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore... I beg you, listen to me patiently. Verse 4. My manner of life for my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Without Jesus, my life was, the Apostle Paul would say, I was a raging bull against the church. I was a religious zealot with all the wrong religious information. I was a sinner. I was a murderer. I was a furious man. Without my life, Joshua, I've been marked by deep insecurity, deep idolatry, and constantly building my identity on superficial things. Never feeling quite at home with the parents' divorce and never quite knowing God as father, just always shaky. I was an insecure teenage mess. What was your life like before Jesus? This is written in scripture. Paul seems to think it's important to share what God has done in his life. He'll get to truths and scriptures and doctrine, but don't jump over the personal testimony aspect of being a witness. Here's the next thing. God took a hold of my life through. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. This is still Paul talking. With the authority and commission of the chief priests. He's going to Damascus to kill more Christians. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. How did God get a hold of Paul's life? He was on a going to kill Christians, and God stopped him in his tracks. How did God get a hold of my life? I was going to this vision of a great life, a pretty girlfriend, sports success, and a college future on my way, and God stopped me as I walked. Amy walked by with a male cheerleader. Boom, dead in my tracks. And I had to rethink. Wow, I built my life on that. And Paul built his life on persecuting what was now standing before him. God grabbed a hold of his life. The next thing we see, Jesus is my treasure because, you see it in there, because he's taken him from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God, and he's received forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. That word means set apart. Why is Jesus Paul's treasure? Because he's taken a man who did everything in his human power to end the church. And now he's turned him around, and he said, now go and build that same church that you were just trying to destroy. That's called grace. Paul didn't deserve it. And Paul, most of the New Testament is Paul. And it's filled with this gracious God who kept coming after Paul. And now through Paul is going after these churches the same way. The last thing we ask on a baptism sheet is Jesus is changing my life because. How is Jesus changing your life now? For me, that deep insecurity that I had for so long. There's still remnants, but it's, I feel secure in the Lord. 
Like I have a job now where I have to stand in front of people, what I'm doing right now, and talk. And like there's a performance to it. And there's a, how was it good? The nice people always say, that was the best thing ever. My wife goes, I could have used Seth. And I say, come on. But the reality for me now is this identity of performance and all the stuff I used to build my life on is, is not utmost. God loves me. The day I fail in the biggest possible way ever, God loves me the same right then. He loves me when I'm doing great in this role, and he loves me when I'm failing. He loves me. That's amazing. That's great. One thing that's probably impacted me as much as anything in my entire Christian life is... Twitter, especially this tweet I read probably three years ago by a pastor named Jared Wilson, and his tweet said this, oh, I love my friend Jesus, no, it says I love my friend Jesus, there we go, because, that's so simple, and then he would fill it in with why he loves Jesus. And for me, who was like attaining all this theological knowledge and training and getting equipped to lead the church and just this simple statement, he loves his friend Jesus because and all these sweet little sentiments, it was amazing for me. So what I want to do, this is still personal testimony. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and I want to read some of these. From a guy named Jared Wilson, a sinner like you and I. He says, I love my friend Jesus because he knows everything I've ever thought and still doesn't cross the street to avoid me when he sees me coming. I love my friend Jesus because he chased after me when I ran away and he didn't stop till I was found and tackled. I love my friend Jesus because he's never left me and won't ever leave me, even when I'm most leavable. I love my friend Jesus because even when he's laughing at me, he's laughing with me, there is never any guile or mockery with him. I love my friend Jesus because even when he calls me on my bull, he does not nag or shame me. I love my friend Jesus because he never checks his watch while I'm talking to him. I love my friend Jesus because he never brings up my old stuff. I love my friend Jesus because he doesn't nitpick. I love my friend Jesus because he never leaves me behind. I love my friend Jesus because he waits unhurried with me. I love my friend Jesus because when I enter the room, he doesn't shake his head and mutter, this guy, but smiles and shouts, this guy. I love my friend Jesus because though he has every right to be, he's nevertheless not ashamed to call me his brother. I love my friend Jesus because he doesn't pass on any false reports about me, but is glad to be my eternal advocate. I love my friend Jesus because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I'm in good with the boss of existence. I love my friend Jesus because I can just be myself with him. I love my friend Jesus because he is infinitely rich with grace and a big spender. I love my friend Jesus because he makes me feel like a conqueror, but he does it without feeding my ego. You can lift up your heads. Paul loves his friend Jesus. Don't complicate it. Do you love your friend Jesus? If you don't, this is where we meet him. In student ministries, we're going through the book of John, and it's a lot. The main reason is because I was looking back at what we've been covering in student ministry on Wednesday nights, and there's been a lot of cultural engagement, apologetic sort of stuff like helping kids defend their faith, lots of kind of head 
knowledge and getting them equipped for a world that's opposing the faith. And I just had the realization, we haven't just kind of looked at Jesus in a while. Just Jesus. Just, what's Jesus doing in this book? Do you love your friend Jesus? If you don't, he's here. And he's available. And he wants to be known. We share our personal testimony. We don't have to be experts in all things theological. Here's our point three. Reality number three. No. There we go. We're up against an impossibly biased jury. What do I mean by that? Paul was not dealing with neutral people. Festus and now King Agrippa and Bernice's sister, they weren't neutral blank slates where Paul got to present his argument and they heard it through completely clean filters. How do I see this? Go to chapter 26, verse 17. I want to see how Paul describes folks who are not in Jesus yet. Chapter 26, verse 17. says this. Delivering, we read it previously, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified. They are in darkness. The reason Agrippa doesn't hear or see Paul for who he really is is because he's in darkness. He's not just influenced by Satan occasionally. It says they are under the power of Satan. If you are not a follower of Jesus, Satan has complete power in your life and you don't even know it. The words the Bible uses to describe people outside of the faith of Christ, and it's not just to be punk and showy, it's to describe reality for what it is. It's from a loving God who says, this is what's really going on. He uses words like blind, Ephesians is a book we're going to cover next year. You are spiritually dead. You are in a grave. Your will is broken. There's a Bible study that happens here called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship for Ladies. And they're going through the book of Romans. And when you get to Romans 1, 2, and 3, we covered this a few years ago. It's all about what mankind really is. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul kind of hits the exclamation point on it. He says, everyone has turned away from God. No one seeks after God. No one is good. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one does good. All, they've all together turned away from God and have become worthless. Agrippa was blind. And Paul's trying to describe a beautiful painting with all the colors in the world to a blind man standing in the darkness. So our witness is supernatural. It's not a logic debate that we are looking to win brain to brain. It is God needs to come down and open eyes of the blind. Agrippa did not see because he was blind. Paul did what he should have done, though. He shared what God had done in his life. We are dealing with an impossibly biased jury. I want you to go to verse 26, chapter 24, and just see how Agrippa responds here. Chapter 26, verse 24. So Paul had given his deal. He's actually in the middle of a speech, and Festus is furious. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I am 
And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things had escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? A little background on King Agrippa. His grandpa was the guy who tried to kill baby Jesus, Herod. His dad was the guy who tried to stop the church earlier in the book of Acts, killed some of the apostles, and he was killed on the spot by God. And now grandson, son, gets to look at, objectively at his life and the life of his family members and say, didn't go well for him, didn't go well for him. Here's my shot. I'm standing before the very guy who is bringing the same message they brought to my granddad and my dad. And he's blind and he refuses to hear. And his statement is interesting. Verse 28, Grippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Other translation says, you almost made me a Christian. You were this close. People who are blind aren't this close to seeing until they see. He was this far away. He was biased as the rest of the world apart from Jesus is. You almost made me a Christian. If you read through the book of Acts, whenever there's a sermon or a preaching or some miracle done, usually what's said is the people watching, some believed, some mocked, And some walked away and said, I'll hear this again, but I'm hungry and I need to get something to eat. That's the response. God has to come down and open eyes. Agrippa's eyes were shut as the rest of the world is. Here's the fourth reality. We must remember the foundation of the Christian life. Go back to verse 19. I want you to hear Paul's words of what he feels like is the foundation of the Christian life. Verse 19, therefore, therefore, in light of all that God did for me in stopping me, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with this repentance. And for this reason the Jews have seized me, and this is why I stand before you now. Because Paul's message was repent. Repensi, a Latin word pensi is thoughts. The Christian life starts with rethinking. My wife and I used to go to a church in Dallas. And the pastor's wife there discipled young ladies all the time as they came into the faith. And she would take a, a glass thing. She didn't do this all the time, but to, and she would fill it. You've been filling your life with education and family, some good things. Some, but you've been filling your life for the last 34 years. And she would take it, throw it on the ground, psh, The Christian life says, you've been building on the wrong foundation. We need to start over. In our world, it's hard to see that because we are American and we're mostly Christian and we're kind of almost Christian like Agrippa. And the thing that needs to change is just church attendance now. No, no, no. No, no, no. This needs to be shattered and you got to start over. Rethink how you've thought about everything. Non-Christian in the room, if you're not following Jesus yet, you need to rethink That's it. You don't need to get to church 17 times before the Lord looks down on you and gives you the thumbs up. You just need to stop and rethink. Faced with the truth, what Paul says, I am speaking true and rational words. When you hear the truth and rational words, you stop and you rethink. Martin Luther, the Reformation is being celebrated this year. It's been 500 years. Here's what kicked off his fight with the Catholic Church. This is a statement. 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be of repentance. Paul says, I commanded them to repent and then to turn to deeds in keeping with this repentance. Repentance, repentance, repentance. Non-Christian, you need to repent. Period. Christian, know this. The next time you see substantial growth in your life or fruit, as the Bible calls it, the reason the fruit is there or the growth or maturity is there is because at some point you repented of something you needed to repent of. That's how we grow. That's how we get into the faith. That's how we grow. Repentance. Stopping and rethinking and going towards true and rational words. Not crazy out of our mind words. That's what we do. Last one. Reality number five. We will be surrounded by so much heartbreaking irony on our journey. No, I say, that's ironic a lot. And then I, as I was writing this message, I thought, I couldn't define irony if somebody asked me to. So I looked it up. For those of you in the same boat as me, and it says this. It's a literary technique, originally used in Greek tragedy, by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, but completely unknown to that character. They think life is a certain way. In reality, and everyone watching who sees reality sees it for what it is. You see some statements in here. You are out of your mind, Paul. That's ironic, because Festus was out of his mind. Paul says, verse 29, Paul said, whether a short or a long time, Paul is pleading, all of his emotions going into this, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I, except for these chains. That's ironic. Those chains mean nothing. The message, which is a paraphrase, says, I wish that all would become like me except for this prison jewelry. That's what's really going, it's, just jewelry. It'll be taken off soon. It's not that big a deal. And then the most ironic in verse 32, Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. That's ironic that Agrippa, who was in bondage to sin, says this man could have been free if he had appealed to the guy that I have to appeal to rather than the guy, Jesus, that he's appealing to. That's ironic and that's heartbreaking because that's our lives as faithful witness with our family, our friends, some of our spouses who say, I'm enlightened. And think about how we named stages of life, the dark ages. There's a lot of dark stuff, but primarily dark ages because when the church was the primary cultural creator of that time, that's dark. What comes after that? The enlightenment. Set that aside. And now we are enlightened. And now we live in the enlightenment residue. The Bible says we're in darkness. You don't get enlightened by setting this off to the side. That's ironic and heartbreaking. And Agrippa says, this man could have been free. Paul was the most free man in this entire situation. Some of you are the most free, most joyful, most enlightened people in your situations. And people look at you and think, that's just part of the reality of being a faithful witness. So Christian, I would encourage you with these words. I wish everyone could be like me except for this prison jewelry. The reality in your life, whatever pain you're in, it's just temporary jewelry. And you truly are free. You're the most free. Jesus Christ has freed you by his death and resurrection, and you are so free. God just has you in a certain place for a season to live faithfully and to be a witness. But you're the free one. Don't forget it. Non-Christian. 
this man is out of his mind. Some of you aren't Christians yet because there's rationally in your head you think they're loopy. I'd say you're out of your mind. Paul says, I am speaking true and rational words. Where does truth come from? From the word of God. Where does rational thought come from? From the mind of God. Anything that is apart from God's mind or God's words is not true or rational. Paul was free and full of truth and rational, and he, people look at him and think, you're crazy. Non-Christian. Here's what, Luke did this last week, and I loved it. Think about it. Repentance is what's next for you. It's the only way to freedom, to joy, to light, to eternity with Jesus is if you stop and rethink. Consider God for who he is. Consider who for you are. You're in the dark and you're a sinner. But God has bridged the gap in the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Would you come? Repent, turn around and come back. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. Come to the altar. Father's arms are open wide. Come, non-Christian. Paul would say, until you come, you are out of your mind. And he would be the right one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. We are like Paul in our story. We lived a life apart from you. Few of us got as violent as Paul, but we are all as twisted in our motives, in our heart, in our reasons for life as he was. We thought we were true. We thought we were rational. We thought we were enlightened. We thought we were free. And the exact opposite was true until, like Paul, you stopped and met us, and you turned us, and you enlightened us. You freed us. You brought us from darkness to light. You took us from the power of Satan to you, and you've given us a place among the rest of us who are being sanctified, set apart by you, God. God, this story is heartbreaking because we see it and we think of specific people in our life. Yet, God, this story gives us hope because you are the God that goes after everyone. You stopped Paul. You pursued Agrippa and his family time and time and time again. You don't leave us in our stupidity and sin, but you come for us, God. So come towards us again today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.